Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello and welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast. I'm Tam Watermer from the Department of Psychology of Northumbria University, as well as the Centre for Dementia Prevention based at Edinburgh University, and I'm delighted to be hosting this week's show. Today we're discussing a crucial topic that has affected many people this year and which we've read about a lot in the news. This is how COVID-19 has impacted care services and in particular our dementia care uh, services and research. The National Institute of Health Research and other research funders, uh, their response has been uh, fantastic during this pandemic. Very quickly they've provided funding to support COVID-related research and that funding wasn't only spent on developing treatments and vaccinations, but has also uh, looked into how the virus and various socially distanced measures that have been taken to keep people safe have been affecting people's everyday lives, uh, as well as society and care in general. If anything, I think the pandemic has offered an opportunity to uncover certain vulnerabilities within our care systems, but it's also offered the opportunity to discover how to improve these systems for for the most vulnerable in society and for future. Living with dementia at any time brings uh, everyday challenges to the individual with dementia, as well as those who care and love them. It is only right, therefore, that current health research focuses on the pandemic, dementia, and dementia-related care. With this in mind, I would like to welcome our guests today, who are three researchers that have responded to the various calls for help in delivering COVID-related dementia care research. I welcome Dr. Clarissa Giebel and Dr. Stephen Mason from the University of Liverpool and Jacqueline Cannon from the Lewy Bodies Society. Welcome, guys. Clarissa, many of our listeners are already familiar with your wonderful uh, monthly blogs um, and you've worked uh, for a long time with the National Institute of Health Research. Uh, could you introduce yourself though, for, uh, for those people who might not be aware of your work? Yeah, well, thank you for inviting me for this podcast. So um, I'm Clarissa Giebel. I'm a research fellow at the University of Liverpool and at the NIHR ARC Northwest Coast. And my research mainly focuses on how we can enable people living with dementia, living independently in the community for as long as possible, and also looking at the inequalities and barriers that people are facing. And with COVID, my work has shifted a bit to put a COVID angle on this. Great. And Stephen, welcome to the show. Could you give us a quick uh, introduction of yourself as well? Yeah, thank you. So um, I'm Stephen Mason. I'm the research lead for what's called the Palliative Care Unit, which is a research and academic group which um, is based at the University of Liverpool and the Royal Liverpool University Hospital Um, and I guess what we do is we focus on clinical research access particularly really in palliative care so not specifically um, dementia research but all palliative care. Um, So I lead a team of academic researchers and academic clinicians doing we do everything from bench-based science to um, bedside so we have guys who are looking one guy woman who's looking at um, urine to see if you can identify biomarkers which can be used for prognostication to researchers looking at the experiences and quality of end of life care and this is where my research kind of ties in a little bit with the the podcast today so we are involved at the moment in a large 
Horizon 2020 EU funded project looking at experiences of end of life care. And that was put on hold due to the um, lockdown. So we've repurposed that study a little bit to look at the experiences of end of life care, both for healthcare professionals and for people who've been recently bereaved. And within the sample um, that we have at the moment, about 50% of our sample are um, bereaved individuals whose um, relatives or loved ones had had um, dementia. So again, there is a um, there is a real focus on that within this work that's ongoing. Excellent. And we will obviously discuss a bit more about the implications of that work um, in a moment. And Jackie, uh, last but not least, if I could ask you to introduce yourself. Okay, yeah. Um, good morning. And again, thank you for inviting me to join this event today. Um, yeah, my name's Jackie Cannon from the Louis Body Society. We're a small but vital charity that funds research into Lewy body dementia and promotes awareness of the disease. Uh, I'm a former carer for my dad who lived with Lewy body dementia. And for anybody that doesn't um, know what Lewy body dementia is, it's probably best described as the worst bits of Alzheimer's and the worst bits of Parkinson's disease put together. Great, thank you for the introduction. So um, I thought we would focus a little bit on the research um, uh, in the beginning. And I know Clarissa that you have been obviously leading um, some COVID related research and you have a particular study that's, that's just come to press or has been published. Could you expand a little bit more on the study and the implications and findings? Yeah, sure. Um, so Jackie has been involved in this as well in this large study. So we've been uh, receiving some funding from the University of Liverpool back in March, uh, quite quick turnaround, uh, only a few days to kind of submit the application. Um, so our research, it's a mix, it was a mixed method study and we wanted to understand how the pandemic very early on is impacting on, so the public health measures are impacting on accessing social support services for dementia and for older people, so aged 65 and above, and carers as well. So. When we talk about social support services, what we are referring to is, for example, paid carers coming into your home, helping you with um, medication, food, dressing. We are talking about respite care, daycare centers, peer support groups, or social activities, such as singing and dancing groups. And as I'm describing them, we can tell they're all face-to-face. -face. They all involve this face-to-face -face interaction. So, mm -hmm. and, and we know they're really vital to keep a good quality of life for people with dementia and, and old adults, but also family members and family carers. So we thought, how on earth are these public health measures now impacting on accessing this support? So we did a qualitative piece of work and a survey. So I'll talk a little bit about the qualitative bit first. So what we did in April, and I must say a big kudos to all of the team members in helping us. So we are a huge team of academics, uh, clinicians, third sector providers, such as the Louis Body Society or the Brain Charity. And we all put our heads together to collect telephone interview data um, on family carers and people living with dementia. We did 50 interviews over the phone back in April. And then we did uh, up to 20 follow-up interviews three months later. So we really asked people, what are your experiences? How have you been accessing social support services before the pandemic? How has it changed? How does it make you feel? And what are your experiences now in accessing them? So as we might have thought, there was a huge drop in accessing services. And what we also found already in April, 
So there was only a few weeks since the national lockdown happened. Carers were reporting that people living with dementia had deteriorated much faster as a result of that suddenly being ripped out from that support. But also what we think is that, well, people were supposed to shield then and not go out. So not having that physical stimulation of walking or cognitive stimulation of seeing other people, talking to other people, getting engaged. Um, and also that we found that the remote support available back then, I mean, now we're in December, things have slightly changed, but back then there was little to no remote support of any of these services. So people were quite left to their own devices. Mm -hmm. so, so that's a snapshot of the qualitative work. And then the survey was a three time point survey online and over the phone, because we wanted to make sure we're reaching people that are not um, digitally literate and don't have access to the computer or internet. Um, so we had over 600 people taking part in the first survey and over 400 in the last one. So quite a nice mm -hmm. number of people. And what it showed, what is really, it complemented our qualitative findings because we actually have numbers now showing there's a huge reduction in how much people were accessing social support services. But what we could also tell, because it was the quantitative data, we showed that reductions in social support usage and access were actually linked to increased levels of anxiety and lower levels of mental well-being. So there was the clear link between not getting any social support and reduced mental health and mental well-being. Okay. And did your study, uh, presumably you looked at all different types of dementia, and I know um, Jackie sort of alluded to how Lewy bodies is the worst bit of Alzheimer's and the worst bit of Parkinson's together. Did you find that there were uh, differences in responding to the types of dementia? So I would imagine those which have a Parkinsonian component getting outside for the carer and, and for the individual might even be above and beyond, have more difficulties with, with, with doing so. We, we have found so far um, one difference in the qualitative data in that. So if we imagine all the remote support, like we're doing now with this podcast, we're on Zoom, okay? So there's yeah. this vision issues, but we do know that there are certain subtypes of dementia like posterior cortical atrophy, where people were saying, well, my mother, my father has really big issues make, making out the different, um, so a support group was taking place over Zoom, but then the person with dementia couldn't really figure out who was in the little Zoom boxes. Whereas if they were face-to-face -face with a peer support group, they, they could know, these are my peers, I know these people. So there's these issues, but I think there's definitely, we've we've collected so much data, there's more room to, to really understand how does it differ between Lewy body and Alzheimer's, for example, and the other rare dementias. Okay. And I, I suppose also different caregiver responses as well to, uh, you know, for the different types of dementia. Mm -hmm. um, you brought in, um, you know, this obviously was specific to the UK. Um, and I know that some of your work also has a strong global health focus. Given what you found in the UK, how would we be able to even extrapolate that to, to those societies where maybe the care, dementia care infrastructure either doesn't exist or is very dissimilar to, to what we have here? Yeah, really good question. So we were approached quite early on by a number of researchers in different countries. And now we have um, 
well, we're already finishing data collection. So we've now got an international study comparing our UK data against Australian data, Poland, uh, Italy, and India. So they have collected qualitative data and some of them have collected quantitative survey data. But what we did notice is because some of the data were collected a little bit later in the pandemic, there was quite a bit of survey fatigue. So more people were interested in uh, talking to someone over the phone. Um, so we're just analysing the data now. Oh, brilliant. brilliant. Um, and I suppose, Stephen, um, I just meant to say um, in, in your own research with uh, having to adapt it for the COVID situation, have you found that people are reporting or um, that the, the results indicate that palliative services, you know, the likely impacts that, that COVID-19 is having on, on them as well, research and, and services? Um, well, within research, I guess there are there are big challenges, and I think everyone's having to adapt. So, um, as Clarissa was saying, I guess um, so. Normally, we would do face-to-face -face interviews as most people would, but most of our interviews now are through Zoom or actually through telephone. We tend to find um, the patients and relatives we're speaking to prefer to use a telephone rather than video conferencing. Um, but obviously, you lose nuance within. Um, those types of interviews and particularly as well because we're dealing with um, subjects that are emotive. Um, from the researcher's perspective, it's tricky to both offer that support, but also kind of assess how comfortable um, individuals are. So, so yeah, that makes that, that tricky as well. And equally, I suppose, with, um, with surveys that we would normally administer as well, we would often try and have our researchers help facilitate those questionnaires with people. Um, and again, that's that's kind of um, more problematic. I think in terms of from a healthcare professional's perspective, it's just, yeah, it's the volume and change of work. And also the, I guess the key thing for um, services is the number of people that you are off because of um, issues with COVID and that then impacts on delivery. So I think, um, yeah, that's a, a big challenge, which adds, adds stress into the system. Um, on top of dealing with the clinical issues and the emotional issues that people face. And I think, um, I mean, I think, yeah, healthcare services and as people, uh, people are aware, did a fantastic job and people are going um, above and beyond and, and doing those extra miles. But I think um, one of the key things for us is thinking about how we support um, everyone from healthcare assistants up to senior clinicians um, towards the end of this process and, and what's, what's going to happen towards the end of this. And there's some really interesting work going on by uh, um, other colleagues. So one of my colleagues um, down in um, Cardiff, um, Professor Simon Noble has, has um, developed a really interesting uh, way to both um, collect data in terms of people's experiences, but also provide a forum for people to um, um, vent effectively their challenges called COVID Confidential, which is basically a platform where um, clinicians can either um, join this online platform and type in their messages or they can speak into the platform and they can unload and then um, Simon and his team, team are um, looking at that. And I guess it's been um, quite inter interesting. Some of the findings he's already reported, you know, everything from the challenges that people face in managing um, end of life care and COVID to, um, I think he said one 
<laughs> one clinician just had a one word response, which was um, an expletive um, in their COVID confidential kind of framework. So I think, yeah, there are big challenges there. And I think it's really key for, key for us to try and document these. Our, certainly our focus within the work we are doing is, I guess there's a lot of public knowledge and there's a lot of media presentation of what's going on, but actually documenting this in a structured way so that we can look at lessons for the future um, is, is really what our focus is in trying to do this work. Yeah, and I suppose that's, that's really interesting, you know, refocusing it around not just the individuals with dementia and their, and their carers, but also those clinicians who are, you know, the unsung heroes of supporting um, everyone through this, this transition um with getting to grips with technology and all that as well so that's that's a really good initiative that what was it called COVID confidential COVID confidential yeah um i think if you google search it but yeah i think and i think looking at certainly in care homework as well the mm. um the um i mean obviously there are good and bad examples but some of the good examples are really amazing of staff going above and beyond and um really showing um leadership at all levels from mm you know normal um, care assistants to senior managers and trying to make sure that um, care is really truly patient-centered or client-centered and also centered on the family as well so um, I think there'll be some really interesting data getting published over the next um, four to six months showing some of these innovations which hopefully can be um, um, yeah taken forward by other people as well. That, that actually sort of brings me to the, to the next question for Clarissa and Jackie. Um, with your, your study findings, did you have a look at the differences between um, people in the community and people in uh, care homes? And did you find differences between those different groups as well? I'm kind of in the data all the time at the moment. Um, so when we did the, this particular study that I was talking about earlier, in the follow-up interviews, which we did in end June, early July, there were quite a few people, so carers, whose relative with dementia had entered a care home during the pandemic so we did some um uh well comparison in terms of experiences of um what is it like communicating for example um so that was difficult at this time point but since then we've received extra funding and both jackie and Stephen are part of this project so we are doing currently a study specifically looking at the experiences of family carers of people living with dementia who are residing in a care home and care home staff during this pandemic. So we've um, completed data collection in November and we're just finishing data analysis today, actually. So, um, Congrats. so we, thank you. <laughs> so it's, it's quite, I think what, uh, yeah, it's, the speed in which research is being conducted at the moment is different as well. Obviously, we need to be mindful of the quality of everything, but then we're also aware that because it's so relevant and topical right now, and it actually can inform practice and changes. So I feel as a researcher, we almost have a duty to kind of try and get this as best and as quickly out there as possible to try and make some changes now um yeah exactly yeah that's i mean that's that's a good point actually i think we we've been focusing quite a bit on covid and the the barriers to research but what actually do you think are the opportunities um opportunities research practice i mean we're all um, having to adapt i mean i think i, I 
I remember at first when it was um, March and suddenly all of my standard research was stopped. And I mean, uh, Stephen was talking about it earlier as well. And I just had for a few weeks, I was like, oh my God, I can't do anything now. And then suddenly there were so many opportunities in terms of doing COVID research. And we're now so adjusted, I think, to how we collect remote data, how we do public involvement remotely. Um, but I think also what's kind of good is that we can really easily set up meetings with people that are not right in Liverpool, for example. Um, and we can have that huge level of expertise in a meeting as well. I think if anything, it's, it's sort of all taught academics. We don't need to travel necessarily um, to meet and conduct research. We can, we can just have uh, a virtual chat and, and get things done sometimes a little bit faster too. So yeah, yeah. making yeah, use of that I technology. Think, I think, I think there's, there are pros and cons to that. So certainly, yeah, reduced travel is, um, um, yeah, for people with families and busy, busy lives and stuff like that, it is. And so some, there is, but again, I guess part of the challenge with it as well is that a lot of the, um, I guess, hidden curriculum of research or hidden kind of, the, you know, the, um, the, the stuff that goes on outside of meetings is a little bit more kind of, um, um, tricky I, I guess so yeah so there are there are definitely some benefits um but there are some challenges as well in terms of structuring research um and jackie clarissa um mentioned about uh patient and public involvement how has the Lewy body society for example had to respond to that in terms of i presume there was some always remote aspect to it but how are you sort of still engaging with with your members yeah, so we've, we, as the Lewy Body Society, um, have had, had to adapt very quickly. Um, we've got a number of Zoom events that we, that we have been doing. We've had presentations from researchers um, on our, all our social media channels. Um, we've been advertising opportunities for research um, involvement and on our websites. And I'm also the chair of the Wigan Dementia Action Alliance. Um, so through that as well, uh, we've been encouraging members and followers um, to participate um, in all research opportunities, because I think research pre-COVID had already shown that people with Lewy body dementia, the most common type of dementia that people have never heard of, deteriorate at a much quicker rate than people with other types of dementia people with Lewy body dementia are more likely to be admitted to hospital or to a care home. So it was really important for us that people um, that follow us and support us had the opportunity where, when it arose to take part in research and, and give them the opportunity to have their voice heard. And um, would you say, um, you know, with, with the nature of, of Lewy bodies being quite a, a faster progression, would you, would you say, around the time of a diagnosis that there's maybe even more anxiety for the individual receiving that diagnosis or the caregiver of people in your experience um, prepared enough by the clinical community or elsewhere for how it differs to, to Alzheimer's? I think it's very much a postcode lottery, mm -hmm. um, if that's the right term. Um, in some areas, people will get that post-diagnostic support, whether it's a six-week follow-up sessions from a local memory service. Um, other people will just be given a diagnosis of Lewy body dementia 
and that's it. They won't be given any information packs, they won't be given any um, signposting to services um, and they just don't get that information, they don't get the right support. And that can be from having taken potentially three years to get to the point of diagnosis or being misdiagnosed and then re-diagnosed with Lewy body dementia. I know with my own research in, in the condition, it's, it's an incredibly difficult um, patient group to recruit for research study. Um, often because there is this long diagnosis and a different trialing of different medications to respond to the, the more severe psychiatric symptoms. Um, and again, I think um, maybe uh, relative to other types of, of dementia is not as much research going on. So for those uh, uh, dementia researchers who might be wanting to expand more into, into looking at Lewy body's dementia, how does the, the society support the researchers um, in terms of funding and um... so we have we have a grant round that people can apply for we're members of the association of medical research charities so we have a specialist advisory committee made up of around 15 um, individuals who are specialists in the field um, including uh, professor alistair burns from uh, manchester university um, director for dementia for nhs england and so it's not the society that decide on what to fund and not what to fund uh, because we're not the experts in that research area. Um, it's the experts that tell us, yes, this is a good project and this is gonna lead on to something else. Great, okay. And I suppose, um, you know, just thinking about looking to the future now that a lot of the research is starting to come to light and a lot of the studies are starting to round up I suppose the question to all of you is, you know, what do you think has been the main lesson from, from COVID-19 um, and its impact on our dementia and our care services? And what would your suggestions be to, to say governments of today um, or policymakers on how better to improve uh, research diagnostics and um, care for, for individuals and their, their families um, with these conditions? I think, I think from us, from our point of view, um, especially in 2021, we will be having a real big push on trying to get as many people registered who have a diagnosis of fluid body dementia with joint dementia research. Because I think the figures is something like 180 people registered. And I've spoken to people, uh, I've spoken to researchers who have said that they are trolling JDR, joint dementia research every day looking for people to take part in their research projects and especially now research projects that were underway that have had to stop because of covid those participants probably won't be able to continue when the research project begins again mm -hmm. so the researchers are going to have to start from stage one again and have to potentially recruit new people to take part in their mm -hmm. research project yeah i think i definitely agree there needs to be specific strategies for recruitment um, of people with Lewy body's disease because of the nature of the, the progression. Um, and to, to move that forward, um, I have in January got a meeting with um, Chris Green, who's the MP for Bolton and chair of the all-party parliamentary group on medical research, because he's particularly interested in those research projects that have had to go back to stage one Mm -hmm. and have not been are going to have to look for new participants yeah. um, so that is something that we're going to be following up with him in 2021. Great 
And I suppose similar questions to uh, Clarissa and Stephen, what is your be in your main lesson? And if you could have a chat with, with government today, what would you be advising? I think one thing, I mean, we, we kind of knew about it anyways, uh, like us in the sector, social care and social support and receiving that care and support after a diagnosis is just so important for people living with dementia and their family carers. They shouldn't be forgotten. They are people in their own right who put in so much unpaid hours of care. They have that psychological burden, many of them, so they need to be supported as well. We kind of knew that in our little community, but I think what COVID now did, it kind of brought it on the spotlight for everyone to realize oh, it's really, really bad if that's not there for people living with dementia and family carers. So what really, and I think also something that came out in, in our work was that many third sector organizations, obviously during the COVID with furlough and everything, they, they were struggling as well, so financially. So there's also the worry in terms of will they be able to provide that care and support once the pandemic has kind of eased off and the vaccines are working, et cetera. So what really needs to happen, there needs to be more funding, I suppose, into uh, third sector from government, but also just supporting these services um, to support the people with dementia and family carers better. And I, I hope government are listening. Stephen, <laughs> yourself? Um, yeah, I think, I think because our, our focus is very much in, in our research on um, end of life care. I guess the big thing for us is how um, the communication with families um, at the end of life um, is improved. Um, I guess um, services have adapted very quickly and people are aware of things like um, people using iPads or tablets for those um, connections for people at the end of at the end of life, but again, um, how those are done um, and ways that they can be done more sensitively and with greater support um, um, need to be figured out. And particularly for the dementia community as well, it's it, the the challenges with them. So in our research and in Clarissa's research as well, which I'm part of, examples of where those video chats haven't been helpful at all and actually caused more distress. So there needs to be ways which um, in, the, in the dementia community, both for those people with dementia and for their families, how those links are kind of made because in our research, and, uh, and our research is a big international study and we're finding this in, you know, everywhere from um, South America to Japan, it's the challenges for um, carers is that lack of contact and they're very much advocates for um, their loved ones and so not being able to see what's going on and um, and they have high they have high degrees of trust with the care homes that they've worked with but still not having that um, sort of direct observation of what's going on is a big anxiety and particularly in terms of bereavement issues as well it's one of the things that um, we are uncovering in our research is causing people um, anxieties and challenges with their bereavement and thinking well what has happened and particularly a number of um, um, people in our survey only having access at the very last, you know, in the very last moments and literally being on the end of the phone waiting for a phone call so that can then go and see their, their loved one and that being the signal that they're 
you know the, their part, their loved ones in the last hours of life and again just the the, the issue the stress of that phone call and, and not being able to be part of that person's normal um experiences is yeah there are i think it's something that we'll be picking up moving forward and there will be a lot more work in terms of the need for bereavement support so right i suppose finally you know um if say funding was uh, not an issue um you had lottery lottery winning levels of funds what sort of research would you be focusing on next covered or non-covered related I personally would look at the um, impact on care staff, both, um, well, care homes or communities for, within the dementia field, um, because, I mean, now our research has looked mostly at impacts on uh, what we sometimes call service users. So if they receive a service, so people living with dementia or care home residents and the family carers, but I think whilst there's a lot of research now going on on care homes, it's it might not be focusing so much on the mental health implications for staff. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I, I, I guess it's, um, there's kind of, there's two sides of research, isn't there? There's the kind of research in terms of what's going on now and, and what, what's the quality of it. And then the other side of it is new innovations and interventions. And for me, there's a lot of really interesting interventions out there, but which don't have the evidence base um, for them to be, um, adopted and policy around them to push these things forward and I think there's lots of really pe people much cleverer than I am kind of doing really interesting stuff and, and, and doing really interesting work in ways to support um, um, clients, patients, relatives and healthcare staff but again there's just not that um, mm. the pot of funding particularly for end-of-life care is, is really is really small um, you know I think um in comparison, so the often often the comparison made is for every pound which is, is spent on oncology research, um, it's twenty, it's um, 0 0.27 pence is spent on palliative and end of life care. So you can wow. see that there's a there's a big disparity. Yet you know human mortality mm -hmm. still runs at 100. Um, percent So um, so for me, yeah, th there'd be more re more kind of active research and innovations to look and try and develop that evidence base for what can be done because the problem we have at the moment is is just there's lots of things where um yeah there just isn't that evidence base to support them as yet and the challenge is that is getting funding to to do that mm. i suppose jackie for you what would be your top top yeah for me i think i'd like to yeah, I'd like to understand during COVID um, the interventions that have been used for specifically for people with Lewy body dementia. And what do I mean by that? I mean, we've received calls from people where the relatives have been sectioned. Were, were, was that avoidable? But we're seeing an increase in number of calls. Seeing increasing calls from people being prescribed antipsychotic drugs whilst they've not got a diagnosis and they're waiting for a memory clinic appointment, but they've got clear signs. You don't need to be a clinician to see the signs that it's really body dementia or a dementia. So I'd like to understand those interventions and, and how, they, how and what have been used. Right, well, I certainly think those very important um, works um, that hopefully we'll, we'll have more information on uh, as, we learn more and more about um, the impact um, that COVID has had um, through obviously yourselves and uh, other researchers who are 
um, joining the call uh, to look into this in more detail. Um, unfortunately, I'm afraid that's all that we have a time for today, but uh, thank you so much uh, to our panelists, uh, Stephen, Jackie and Clarissa for joining us and um, giving us a little bit of insight into your working lives and um, the impacts you are having as, as individuals um, on society and uh, the solution towards this, this uh, great problem that, we're, that we are facing. On behalf of uh, Dementia Researcher, I'd also like to take the opportunity uh, to thank all the researchers out there who have risen to the challenge and refocus their work to address uh, the challenges that uh, COVID has brought us. Also, all the individuals and organizations that have supported the research, and of course, uh, those people who offer their time and their commitment to participate in these essential studies, often the unsung heroes of uh, research in general. Um, we have uh, profiles of all of today's panelists on our website, including details of their Twitter accounts, if you want to follow them. Uh, if you have anything that you'd like to add on this topic, please do drop us a tweet uh, using uh, hashtag ECR Dementia or add a comment to this post. Thank you very much all for listening and thank you again to our panelists for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.